What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. Before we get rolling, I just want to quickly shout out the three companies that are supporting this show. The first is CoinKite. You've probably heard of them. They are the makers of the Bitcoin, the gold standard Bitcoin hardware wallet, the cold card. Phenomenal device. If you're not taking custody of your Bitcoin, this is an excellent way to do so. And of course, if you're looking to round out a multi-signature scheme, it's compatible with several wallets to do just that. Lots of other fun products in the store if you're a Bitcoin enthusiast. I highly recommend you check them out. Go to coinkite.com to learn more. If you're buying Bitcoin in Canada, bullbitcoin.com is the place to do it. Go there, have a receive address ready, so generated from your cold card hardware wallet. Put it in in your buy order, and as soon as you buy Bitcoin, the exchange never holds your money. They send it directly to your own storage, your own address. And that means that they can never, you know, a fuck up or a rogue employee can never steal your Bitcoin it goes directly from your purchase order into your custody. If you want to maximize security and privacy, I think that's the way to do it. They are also the people behind BitcoinSupport.com. We all know people in our lives that are terrified of engaging with Bitcoin. Maybe they're interested, but they don't know how to get everything set up. That's what BitcoinSupport.com is for. They hold your hand, make sure you know how to buy it, secure it properly, and then you're off to the races. Check them out if you or someone in your life falls into that category. And finally, the Bitcoin 2022 conference, April 6th to the 9th in Miami. It's going to be a massive party celebrating this emerging culture and this emerging or this emergence of freedom in the world. And uh, there's going to be a lot of phenomenal speakers. Apparently, Nayib Bukele has another big announcement this year. And to top it all off, the Sound Money Fest is a big giant party for us all to get down with our homies and plebs. Steve Aoki and Logic are headlining. Dead Mouse is going to be performing. I'm sure it's going to be an awesome time. I can't wait. Uh, use the code RAPIDFIRE at checkout to get yourself 10% off. That's it. Enjoy. Let's do it. We're live. John, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to have this discussion today. I've Look, familiar, familiarized myself with a lot of your work, primarily Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, and I've listened to your uh, much of your series with a good friend of mine, Robert Breedlove, and uh, man, first of all, just uh, kudos for being able to uh, distill what seems to be a lifetime worth of education, <laughs> contemplation and experience into uh, coherent insights directed toward trying to contribute to perhaps the most worthwhile cause there is, which is figuring out how we should be engaging reality for lack of a more all-encompassing term so uh thank you for the work that you've done thus far well thank you for saying that um um yeah <laughs> yeah um uh you 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 your way of uh, uh uh representing it is yeah <laughs> quite accurate uh daunting um i just need to make sure something here sorry just realized that my son unplugged my power cord. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, and um, so it's a daunting series. I, I understand that um, because when people first see it as like, <clears throat> 50 one hour episodes, wow. Um, but <clears throat> it's because it represents exactly what you're saying there. Um, <clears throat> it represents uh, an attempt to distill, uh, to distill Basic, basically 20 years worth of uh, academic scientific work, even more uh, personal transformation, uh, 
and, and, and personal experience um, into, a co like you say, a coherent argument for addressing, um, I think, one of the most plausible explanations as why we're in so much trouble and why we're finding it so difficult to get out of that trouble. And that's what I call the meaning crisis. Yeah. So thank you for saying that. It's, it's very much appreciated, John. Well, I'm hoping, so to contextualize this conversation and what, what I'd, I think is most uh, worthwhile or useful of the time is we'll just tackle whichever components of this that feel like, you know, that resonate with us yeah. most. And we won't, you know, won't try to rush through anything. And if it's the case that we need to have another conversation in the future, your time and willingness permitting, of course, then we can find a way to do that. Because, you yeah, know, these are, these are topics that clearly you and, and more recently myself and, and others have been grappling with. And um, again, I mean, there, there may be, it may be the case that there's nothing uh, more important to try to grapple with and understand and come to terms with. And so I want to make sure we do it justice and not just try to fit it into, you know, certain time constraints that might be, you know, transient or what have you. So, I mean, one of the, maybe the best place to start, uh, and there's so many different places we could start that it's kind of challenging, but this, the series Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, and as you just said, I mean, there seems to be a, a type of crisis of meaning, and this is manifesting in, in culture and in individuals' lives and, and fairly, pretty much everywhere all around the world or at least that's the assertion that you have made and I largely agree with. Uh, can you define or, or characterize what you mean by that? And then we can see what we roll into. Yeah, the, the <laughs> again, <laughs> yeah, 50 hours to try and do that. Uh, uh, but, but I appreciate, first of all, uh, before I get into it, I wanna thank you for the invitation to careful thought. Um, as you can imagine, sometimes I've drawn into uh, much less frequently than initially, uh, you know, to, you know, can you summarize this in five, 10 minutes for, you know, um, I, I generally don't even like to uh, uh, answer requests to appear on the radio because that's typically what happens. Right. So first of all, I want to express appreciation. Um, and if this conversation goes as well as I foresee it, we'll uh, be happy to come back and have another one if we feel it's needed. Fantastic. Um, so, um, the meaning crisis, there's different ways of getting into it. One way I can do is talk about what I mean by meaning and why it's fallen um, into kind of an abeyance, a lack, uh, a hunger. Um, another is I can talk about the symptoms of that, uh, how it's expressed in culture. So I think the best thing would be to dip into both of those, try to give the gist of both of those uh, as quickly as possible. <clears throat> So the basic idea is what is meaning? Well, meaning is actually uh, generated by a process of how we are trying to uh, fit ourselves cognitively and um, sociomotor interaction with the world. It's, it's very much analogous to uh, biological fitness for an organism, how evolution shapes the organism. Um, but if you pay more careful attention as we have nowadays, it's actually niche construction the organism shapes the environment, the environment shapes the organism until they belong together, they fit together. They're, and what opens up is what are, what are called affordances. Affordances are these real relations of fittedness. So this is from Gibson. Like for example, this bottle is graspable by me. 
It being graspable is not a property of the bottle. Not everything can grasp it. The graspability isn't a property of me. I can't grasp Africa or Mars. Uh, it's a real relation for real interaction so that real problem solving and real goal attainment can occur. So that, that kind of evolving dynamic connectedness of your, uh, of your sensory motor loop to the world is sort of the core of meaning. And you can feel that evolution right now in your attention. Let me just try and give you an example of how it's working. So part of what part of what your brain is doing is it's trying to open up and vary your attention, and it, right? And if you let, if you sort of give into that impulse, you'll start mind wandering and you'll drift away. And you can feel that pull right now and me mentioning it, right? And, and by the way, that's not maladaptive. And then there's a count. So think about that like evolution that's introducing variations of what you could pay attention to. Now you don't want to open that up too much because the amount of things you could pay attention to is overwhelming. So what do you do? You try and select down to, Okay, but what right now is giving me relevant information for moving closer to or achieving my goal? And then what you're constantly doing is this all the time. Sometimes it goes very rapidly. You'll break out of a frame and come back in. That's insight. Often it's happening much more sort of like a, a textured salience gradient, like how things are standing out to you backgrounding so this is not this is not cold calculation i'm talking about this is your lived connectedness it, it it's about what what is what what grabs your attention but also what is obvious to you what what your attention ignores and what you're oblivious to and all of that is constantly shifting and evolving in a very complex way now that's actually central to your agency that's your connectedness you have sort of three dimensions how you're connected to yourself and this is sort of your mind body into action, how you're connected to other people. So you and I are constantly trying to improve the relevant information we're sending to each other if we're trying to communicate. And then how I or we are connected to the world. These are all these vibrant connections. Now here's the thing, these are so inherently valuable to you uh, because they are constitutive, they constitute, they found and continually create your very cognitive agency. You can't be a person unless you're an, a, 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 a cognitive agent, and you can't be a cognitive agent unless you're making this, these kinds of ongoing, living, evolving connections. So that's what, and so when you take a look at what the meaning in life literature, what you see is what what people value or what they what they even claim contributes to the sense of how meaningful their lives are is how how much not again they believe but how much they actually experience this connectedness a prototypical instance of feeling that connectedness in all three of those dimensions potentially really enlivened and enriched for you is the flow state the flow state is when that evolving connectedness gains us a, a, a kind of power um, I could argue about in more in depth that that's because you're actually enhancing in that flow state the conditions of good uh, adaptive connectivity. So that's the meaning. And, and then the, the thing that come that needs to be said um, are two points. One, most of that meaning making in the sense of this dynamic sensory motor connectedness is not carried by your propositional beliefs. It's carried by your skills your states of mind, and your traits of character. But we as a culture have tended to orient primarily at the level of our propositional beliefs. And we have let wither away 
the kinds of practices that help us to engage that meaning-making machinery. Now that means we start to lose uh, uh, the, the experience of enhancing it. But there's even a more insidious problem, which is those very mechanisms that make you adaptively fit, give you this sense of connectedness and meaning in life, make you perennially prey to self-deception. You know this. You know this because what happens is what often that machinery that makes things obvious to you. It's obvious that I should have said that. And then you realize, oh, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That was exactly the wrong thing to say. So the problem is that machinery can't, what it does is it selects out of all the information you could pay attention to a very small subset. Most of the time it's doing that very well. But every time you do it, you're gambling that that's the right choice. And sometimes the gamble is wrong and you make the wrong things salient. You pay attention in the wrong way. You think, you th well, well, the way she was holding her hand, it was obvious that she's angry at me. No, she's not angry at you at all. She's reaching out to you in love and you just misframed the situation completely. We know that. So those very framing processes that fit us to reality and give us meaning in life also make us subje subject to self-deception. Most of it's not carried in terms of our propositional beliefs, but at the level of our skills, states of mind, traits of character. So what cultures across time, context, and history have done have created ecologies of practices for trying to ameliorate the self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior and enhance that meaningful connectedness. The word for that is wisdom. And so one way of taking all of that and epitomizing it is to saying, all, all culture is impoverished in affording people, the individual and collective, and both of those are important, by the way, cultivation of wisdom. And wisdom is not optional. If you are not addressing your self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior, it is going to percolate through your psyche and permeate through your life and take on a life of its own until it sucks the life out of your life. If you don't have strategies for enhancing connectedness, you'll feel that life is flat. You're, you're not very connected to it. You're alienated. It strikes you often as absurd or futile. We put those two together and people are in despair. Foolishness and that flatness, that's despair. That's where we are. Mm -hmm. How was that? That was the first half. The, the, that, the, that, was, uh, that, was, that was excellent. You know, it seems to me, um, you know, attention requires commitment or you could say attention yeah. is necessarily exclusionary and so the 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 game at play here let's say is to try to enhance the degree to which your attention is excluding the right things and focusing on or, or you know giving attention to the right the quote-unquote right things or the best things and as yeah. you say i mean if you, every time you commit, you're, you're gambling in a sense, because you're saying, well, this yep. is what I'm committing to the thing that's most salient or relevant or good at the exclusion of other things. And maybe that's a mistake. And as I think I agree with you that these practices, be they religious, religious or otherwise, throughout time have been developed and put in place emergently or, or intentionally to try to uh, aid in that process, that yep. dynamic process of making sure that you're committing your attention to the best place you can, such that you ex have the best experience of life, let's say, as an individual and as part of a, a harmonious collective or an optimally harmonious collective, something like that. Um, why do you think that we are in this position today? We've, we have a legacy of thousands of years of these yeah. be belief systems 
being integral to the development of civilization. And, you know, it would seem that they are competitively or advantageous because all of the at least recorded ancient history that we have, they've always been central to those civilizations. And it seems like those have been the primary enterprises of those civilizations. And now we've reached a time, and I, I referenced this at the beginning of my piece, where we've we've seemingly done away with uh, the enterprise, or a lot of people have done away with the enterprise of religion, and to a, maybe yep. a lesser degree, the seriousness with, with which they take, you know, broadly speaking, quote unquote, spirituality, um, out of perhaps a sense of, you know, that it's unnecessary or not recognizing the value or function of it, um, or maybe even, you know, perhaps an illusion of progress, which I'd like to uh, dig into with you, sure. you know, as, as we go. But what is it that you think has caused us to wind up in the situation that you just described? Well, there, there's, I mean, there's sort of two types of factors. Um, one are historical factors uh, in which people have continually played around with uh, the machinery of our worldview in order to try, I think, uh, to enhance or improve it. Uh, but um, as you said, it's a gamble. That's why we say paying attention. We're spending our most precious resources of time and our own cognitive agency. Um, right. So, uh, and, and, and those gambles have sometimes had unintended side effects. In fact, this, that's part of what's called the frame problem. They're, 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 you, in, in addition to whatever you intend as the consequence of your behavior, there are always a proliferation of unintended side effects. And so it's always possible, again, for things to go off. Um, so one, one perennial problem we fall into is we try to, we, 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 we get utopic. Um, in a particular sense, I'm gonna mean, we can set the utopia in the past and be nostalgic, or we can set it in the future and be what's typically meant by utopic today because we have this future-oriented sense of, 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 of value. Um, but what do I mean by that? And this, is, this overlaps with sort of the, the biblical, I'm not Jewish or Christian or a Muslim, but I, I take the Bible seriously, um, the biblical idea of idolatry. And this is what I mean. We can, we can get into the place where we think we can complete this. We can finish it. Uh, we can... We can, we, can, we can remove the chances, the, 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 we can remove the uncertainty, the gamble, we can, we can finish it, we can complete it, we can perfect it. Um, I consider myself a follower of Plato, but this is one part of Plato that I tend to criticize. Right? So what does that mean? What does that mean? Let me try and get, go back to the analogy I used. If I was to say to you, hey, look, this is how evolution works. Evolution is constantly right, redesigning and redefining from itself what it, is, what it means for a creature to be fitted long enough that it can survive to reproduce. And you know, it could mean the creature's big or small, fast or slow, hard or soft, single cell, like, and, and you go, oh, wow, wow. And then you can say, but what's the final form? What's the form that I can get? So if that creature has that form, that species will never go extinct and evolution is no longer needed. And the biologist is gonna to turn to you and say, no, no, I don't think you're understanding this. There can't be a final form. There is no final form of life. Like evolution is a defining feature of life because life is trying to continually fit itself to a nev never ending, uh, never ending, ceaselessly changing environment that's always going to take you by surprise and always going to be complex beyond the limitations. 
of your cognition. There is no final form, but you can get to the, where you think, now we have it. Now we have it, right? And so you can see this tension within, right? Within, even within religion, right? Because religion is trying to do two things. It's trying to home us against the horror of this reality that can be so vast, right? And, and then, and, and, and when that goes too far, it can, we've got it. We've got the perfect walls. We've got the perfect edifice. We've got the perfect structure. Now just come in here and you will forever be safe, right? And you can see that. But then there's another tendency that says, no, 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 don't do that, right? So, you, you know, you can think of this as maybe like the priest and the temple, but you've got the prophet in the wilderness saying, no, 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 wilderness, wilderness, God is numinous. you got to remember that this, you're, you're going to get slammed if you're not paying it, right? And you can see that tension. And when religions are do, go, doing it well, they get an optimal grip between this. They're constantly shifting between homing and exposing people to the horizon of horror, right? And what, what we lost is we, 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 we for, for various reasons, historical reasons, we got locked into um, a framework where we got locked into our propositions. We forgot our, our skills, our procedures. We forgot our perspectives. That is our states of mind. We forgot our participatory knowing, the char our character traits, right? And we gave great emphasis to belief. And then we figured, you know what we can do? We can get closure on that. We can build perfect structures of thought that have absolute certainty. This is the Cartesian project. As soon as you're locked into that. And what happened is that started to take priority. It got separated, right, from the recognition of the perennial problems of self-deception and disconnection. I'm trying to summarize a lot of history here in a very brief moment. But we got locked into this framework where, right, we, 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 we were beset by the promise of closure and certainty. And um, it's, I mean, you can see it's an intoxicating, it's an, it, like it's an intoxicating thing. Uh, but what we've realized is we can't. And for, you know, whatever criticisms people have of postmodernism, postmodernism shouldn't be treated as a homogeneous thing. There's different thinkers, different arguments. But I, the, the, the two I know fairly well, Derrida and Foucault, what they're basically pointing to, and by the way, the same thing comes out of American pragmatism through James and others is like, no, that quest for closure and certainty, that's not viable, right? How relevant, how salient information is, is never, never perfectable. You, what you most are trying to get is to make it most evolving, most self-corrective as it can possibly be. And so we're locked into a very bad place. What is this has given us is the following, and then I'll, sh I'll shut up and let you start. We have, because of the Cartesian revolution, we're situated in a certain way. We have a scientific worldview that's giving us explanations of all these things, of everything we turn our mind to, like Descartes promised. But what it can't do is give a scientific explanation of science. I mean, the entity, the practice, the relevance, realization, truth-seeking, meaning-making processes that generate the very possibility and the ongoing practice of science are not well explained by science itself. So we do not fit into the worldview and yet we are taught to hunger for a closed certain worldview and to find certainty within it. That's a disaster.
That's a disaster for a worldview. Right. You know, it, as I, you know, that I quote Peterson largely throughout the piece and I open with, uh, you know, highlighting the, what I derive from a reading of Maps of Meaning. And I, I do think it's one of the, the great books of our time and, and perhaps will become a timeless work. But, you know, he and he's been prolific in helping, well, in presenting an interpretation of the Judeo-Christian faith primarily sure. to broad audiences. And, you know, as you're saying that, it makes me think of the point he makes or the function that he uh, uh, attributes to the regenerative hero, which is there's these two eternal forces, right? The chaos of the unknown, novelty, entropy, however you want to describe it, and the known, right? The, yes. the, the familiar structures, safety, conformity, all that kind of stuff. And when I'm hearing you speak, it seems like the scientific revolution, let's say, has maybe caused us to lean too heavily into the latter yeah. uh, and not account sufficiently for the former and furthermore, maybe even do away with the function of the intermediary between the two, the one that's supposed yes. to help mediate back and forth, because, because as you say, it's a never-ending circumstance that we find ourselves in. The, the nature of the circumstance will never change. The, 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 the attributes of the varying circumstances obviously will, but the, the, you know, the broader nature of that circumstance will never change. And I think uh, it seems to me that We've at doing away with what we may falsely or, in, you know, in some cases, perhaps, well, do, let's, let's put it this way, doing away with religions as uh, silly, naive superstitions or emblematic of primitive cultures or whatever, however you want to characterize them such that you can dismiss them more easily, an appreciation for the maybe even primacy of that intermediary function has been dismissed along with it. And yeah. I, I, I believe that you've articulated this in, the me in Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, and many have alluded to this, that when you lose the maybe primacy of that idea, value, or function, what takes its place? And it seems like, you know, this will be an oversimplification, but either a kind of narcissism in which the, the individual is ascendant to the, the primary place, and there's nothing to let's say, submit or subordinate yourself to, even if that's just in the sense of submitting yourself or subordinating yourself to a certain value or values by which to, to orient your behavior, or if we're talking culturally and not necessarily individually exclusively, then perhaps you could make an argument, and many do, and it's probably overly simplified, but I think it, there's, there's, uh, there's validity to it, where the state ends up kind of assuming the role of the 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 primary ordering force or something like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, do you think there's, that's a credible explanation or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I see, I think that was very well said. I thought that was very well said. Let me, let me sort of riff and respond to a couple of the, 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 <laughs> the salient features. Sure. Uh, one is, Notice how just drop into your own phenomenology. The, you know the 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 the, the careful reflection on the, the structures that make your experience meaningful, and you find your sense of realness has this tonos. This is a Greek word for like a creative tension. One sense of 
realness is what is real well that which is most confirmed look and notice i'm using my hands to gesture confirm drawing it like you're building this structure this is the homing this is reality is that which most homes me and right and 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 that's why there's an aspect of realness that overlaps with familiarity and then think about what the word how the word family is in there right okay right and then but we have another sense of realness which is the opposite oh the real is that which surprises me, which can, 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 which is counterintuitive, which I didn't expect, because that can't be a product of my bias, right? It has to that has to be coming from the world because of the way it, it just it, it smashed through the brickwork of my bias so powerfully, you know. And we have this in the scientific experimentation. <clears throat> we look for confirming evidence, but we try to make it open to disconfirmation, etc. Which we're trying to loop the self-corrective loop. We're trying to optimize. I think, by the way, that what well, the process of meaning making, relevance realization, is about optimally gripping, like you said, between those two, between home and horror. And the sacred <clears throat> is exactly the sense of getting an optimal grip on that in a most comprehensive way, I would argue. And so if you throw out the sacred function, you're basically going to sit, you're basically taking this process that is constantly self correcting and evolving, and you're, 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 you're basically like uh, you're, you're lobotomizing it and it's just gonna it's just gonna gravitate and i think you're exactly right what you're gonna get is you're gonna get um uh narcissism and a lot of what passes for spiritual spiritual but not religious not all but a lot is exactly the religion of me that's what people say when they're spiritual they say uh, I mean, and this is not just my view, this is a view of sort of academic studying the spiritual but not religious, but it often means is the religion of me. Um, now that can have a healthy aspect to it. Um, I think the project, you know, Kierkegaardian project, the Socratic project of knowing yourself can be legitimate and authentic. Um, authenticity is also a, 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 a equivocal term, but, but there's also, I, I think you're right, there's a prevalent narcissistic form of this. Um, and it leads to all kinds of uh, self-deceptive behavior. Just one example is spiritual bypassing, the religion of me and having wonderful experiences that I can put on the shelf of my autobiography and look at how wonderful I am. And, and you're, just, you're just bypassing your moral and existential responsibilities to the world and to other people. Spiritual bypassing, it's a studied phenomenon, legitimately so. The opposite, uh, the opposite end of the, like once these get pulled apart, yes. And then you got pseudo-religious ideologies. This is exacerbated by the fact that we think our propositions are what's central about us. This is what I call propositional tyranny. And our ideas, Right, and what we do is we try to conf what we'll do is we'll con we'll we'll configure the you know the perfect system of ideas that's an ideology, and it will right take the place of all the transformations at the procedural and the perspectival and the participatory level that you normally have to undergo when you cultivate wisdom. Instead, all you need to do is believe and adhere to and assert the system of ideas that is closed, that is perfect, that can deal with all situations, interpret every aspect of reality. And you get the pseudo-religious ideologies and they smash the world. They smash the world. We, we, we gave them fair, fairly free reign in the first half of the 20th century and they drenched the world in blood, right? So I another way of thinking of the meaning crisis is people are trapped between these, right? People don't, they don't find the, existing religions viable uh, 
because the, the existing religions, uh, well, I, I have to be careful here, for many people, not for all people, I want to be really careful about that, because I think there are people who still find genuine meaning and wisdom cultivation in religion, but for the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S-S, the, the, one of the fastest growing demographic groups, those people who have no uh, allegiance to any established religion, right, they face they face this problem. The, the, the traditional religions don't seem viable. They don't seem like they can do that work of homing them against the world and also taking them to, to the horizon of wonder and awe. It doesn't do that for them. And that's why they say, I, that, that, sorry, if you want to do that, that's fine, but that's not for me. And then they're caught between these two poles and they can drift, especially if they're doing it autodidactically into the narcissistic religion of me and all of its problems. But so, I mean, a lot of them see that and they sort of pull away and, and then, but then they, right. And then they can, some people can get drawn into the various pseudo-religious ideologies of the right and of the left. I don't see any deep historical difference between their capacity to drench the world in blood, right. And then they're caught in between, they, right. And so you get all these weird symptoms of the meaning crisis. You get right, that suicide is going up amongst this generation, and the age at which suicide is being attempted is dropping. You're now having kids, children committing suicide, even in places of significant affluence like Silicon Valley, right? You're getting loneliness, uh, mental health issues, anxiety disorders, dep depressive disorders, addiction, which is ultimately about this loop getting narrow and tight and what Mark Lewis calls reciprocal narrowing and binding you down. There's the escape, the attempt to escape into the virtual world and replace all of this real connectedness with connections. I have 17 likes. I have 1500, uh, you know, friends on Facebook, all that kind of stuff. Right. And, and, but you see positive symptoms too. You see, right. Uh, although I have criticisms of it, you see the mindfulness revolution, the revival of stoicism. You see people, you see all these emerging discourses, all these new communities of practice, uh, people that we trying to integrate movement, uh, mindful movement, all the emergence of dialogical practices is like circling and like all of this stuff. So you can see all of this attempt, both the, what you might call the negative reactive symptoms that Chris Master Pietro and I talked about. You can also see the positive responses because people are, they're like, ah, the, I don't want to go over there because the state and there's so much political, you know, there's polarization and bullshit and it's be, just become so corrupted. And then, uh, but if I go over here, I, I've met people there, they're just, they're, they're so lost in their own narcissism and they're, right, and they're discon, uh, ah, what do I do? What do I do? That's another way of understanding the meaning crisis. Yeah, well, I think crisis is probably a good word for it. And, you know, when I hear you say those words, I think even though we don't act upon it necessarily as a panic, but, you know, yeah. all those things that you just referred to, like this emergence of, of popularity or interest in stoicism or different forms of spiritual practices, or like people are very much kind of just putting their arms out, maybe with their eyes, you know, only half open and being like, where can I derive that meaning from, you know, that, 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 that hole exactly. that's been left vacant or void for a while, or that I've been conditioned in, and brought up in a world that didn't fill it properly. How can I fill it? You know, and one of the biggest tells for me, you know, and this is obviously somewhat critical, but when, when you engage with people today who maybe are quote unquote, ideologically possessed, or you, yeah. you, you can feel and hear and see their, like their degree of certainty. That's the biggest tell that they've 
kind of yep. given up on that mediatory exactly. process, yeah. right? Yes, yes. And, and you know that, and, and and I think that's changing. I think it's changing rapidly. And back to that whole point of, and and one of the reasons why I brought up the validity of the religious enterprise, let's say, in, in the piece that I wrote, is because I think it's the reason why it's been so integral uh, to you know pretty much every civilization we have records of in some capacity. You know, it takes different shapes, but. Uh, is because it's like that dynamic process that of, yep. of let's yep. say salience or relevance finding or, or honing in yep. our attention that we discussed before. It seems like, you, and, and you're referring to like what people hold up as kind of the, the highest, I mean, wh what you hold up as the highest value, what you, um, what you pray to, what you subordinate yourself to, what you, uh, you know, that will become what orders your behavior, right? Yes. And that, that will dictate very much that dynamic process of determining where your attention falls. And as a result, I think that's probably been, broadly speaking, in my opinion, the, the enterprise of, of religions. Now, of course, humans are corruptible and people take oh, yeah. things overly literally and institutions grow up around these things and everyone's power hungry. And I think this is part of the reason why they degenerate or at least the, their initial purpose is obfuscated and then people end up being attached to these, these institutions and their initial, there may be some some uh, value still in what they're able to convey and steward, but it seems like it's, it's cut off from, you know, the purity of the enterprise as it was initially started, something like that. Um, and That's I well wonder- said. That's I, very well said. Thank you. I wonder if this is always the process, because as we just said, I mean, everything is constantly in flux. So you're yes. never going to get an orientation that is, once and for all map to that dynamic process. It's constantly in flux. And we could probably look at that on every scale. And if we look at yep. it, you know, I think back to cavemen, for example, and, you know, the earliest, let's say it's 40,000 years ago or, or whatever the yeah, date may be. The transition, yeah. And we have, you know, people outlining their hands on cave walls. And then we have like therianthropic figures being painted. And yes, this, this yes, seems yeah, like yeah. the process Yes, of people yeah. coming to grips with their own selfness, their own self-awareness, right? And then yes. this generates the initial landscape of what you might call culture, right? We're kind of feeding, yes. creating this feedback loop into what we are and what we create and how that just accelerates and, yes. and informs yes. us. Yes. And as a result of that, the landscape with which we are communicating which, and which is conditioning us and that feedback loop is constantly changing, right? And it's, yes. it's, it's reflecting back to us. And it's also hopefully serving as a mechanism for novelty to come through the chaos of pure potential and be somewhat contextualized enough so that we can grapple with it uh, yes. in, in, in the proper way and integrate it properly. But it seems like, it, again, it, we're back to that balance where the usefulness and the utility of that process or that feedback loop or that culture gets, you know, maybe its success is such that you become accustomed to it or you take it for granted or you rely on it too much and therefore you're you are less receptive to or you're cut off to the novelty aspect of it that's supposed to revivify and regenerate it and of course this is again the idea of the regenerative hero in, in a lot of myth and, and story but the point that i'm trying to make here is it seems like our landscapes of meaning if we can broadly refer to culture uh in that way are continuously expanding and mm -hmm. so let's say the the approach to um approach to the ultimate 
orienting value by which to mediate that dynamic process of the caveman seems like it is very different from the one of the early Christian, for example, you know, or, or you might even say di different in terms of its, its complexity from, you know, Gobekli Tepe, you know, people 10,000 BC, and then, you know, those, that, those would be somewhat less complex or sophisticated than those of the 5,000, you know, the Egyptians, yep. and then of the Christians, and so on and so forth. And so, are, do you think there's any validity to the notion that part of the reason why we are maybe we fell out of the proper appreciation for that orientation or that mechanism is because we're once again or you know culture has been given a few thousand years to expand the meaning landscape and now the meaning landscape is no longer properly fitted for the orientation mechanism and what what's happening is one is being changed out for another one that needs to emerge to yeah. become fit once again for a, you know, and, and in the latter part of my piece, I make the case that digital worlds that are emerging now are just, you know, the cultural process in another domain and dramatically accelerating that feedback loop and the possibility oh. contained therein because it's basically limitless, the possibilities. So do you think that, and then my final point, and then I'll let you riff on this, but is there an, an argument, I'll put it this way. It's obvious that culture inst cultural institutions and the, the, the de facto or default conditioning and education and knowledge that we derive simply from being in a culture and all the things we pick up as a result of that contributes greatly to the, the consciousness and the awareness that we have. You know, for example, if you and I were born, the example I often use is in like a, a tribe in the Amazon rainforest. Our preferences would be different. Our understandings would be different. Our worldview, all these different things, you know? So it seems like the consciousness that we have available to us, even though physiologically may not be different than the cave people 45,000 years ago, but in, in, in practice or the awareness that is generated from that physiological substrate is vastly different. And so is, are we going through an accelerated process of what, type of consciousness is available to us? And is this waxing and waning of this mediatory uh, value or orientation between chaos and order, broadly speaking, um, is that just part of the evolution of, of consciousness taking place? Something like that. It was a pleasure listening to you. Uh, <laughs> you're eloquent in your articulation and the formulation of, of um, questions. Let me try and pick up on some of the threads and hopefully weave them back, back into the conversation. Um, so I think it's very much the case that we have, I, I refer to it as a cultural cognitive grammar. We have structures of intelligibility that we've deeply internalized that like a grammar, a grammar limits how you can put things together and make sense. And so we have a limited vocabulary, a conceptual vocabulary. We're given a set of concepts and then a grammar for how we can put them together, uh, sort of, right? Um, and so, for example, um, one more way to think. We, and we internalize it so deeply that it becomes transparent to us. Like I often use the metaphor of my, the lenses of my glasses. Uh, they're transparent to me because I'm seeing beyond them and by means of them. And so, for example, we have this grammar of subjectivity and objectivity 
and of them being incommensurable with each other, totally different, uh, totally of different domains. Um, and it's a mystery of how they could possibly interact. And then we vacillate between asserting uh, the importance of objectivity or subjectivity because we, we, we make a, a sort of absolute dichotomy and say there's no way of uh, you know, explaining how they interact. And so we, we vacillate between prioritizing one over the other. And we think this is sort of the way reality is, right? Because we have, I'm just using this as a, a, an example. We have these two, well, we have these two terms of, of conceptual vocabulary, subjectivity, objectivity, and then we have this grammar. They are complete and exclusive and exhaustive and incommensurable with each other. And then we're bound between positivism and uh, romanticism and empiricism and rationalism, and we, and we do all that, right? What we forget is that's historical. It's not the case that that is natural to human beings. We can even look in our own history where that division is not understood or even experienced by people. You can, you can just look back before, you know, basically the rise of nominalism and the scientific revolution. You look into the Christian Neoplatonic tradition you, or you look at other, play, other cultures throughout the world, look at Dehoism. Like th that dichotomy is not there. N many people have noted that. But what people haven't noted is, yes, but that tells you how powerful these cultural cognitive grammars can be. So there is definitely that. And that's because we are faithful to culture, right? Uh, like, like, like you said, we, we, are, we, we commit to, right, the, 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 we commit simultaneously to that, this particular worldview and the conceptual vocabulary and the cognitive cultural grammar that makes it possible. This is, this is you, you commit to all of this sort of as a package deal, not only what you see, but how you are seeing it. And that becomes all, almost, your, the how you're seeing it becomes completely transparent and what you're seeing becomes indistinguishable from reality itself to you. All of that is the case. Um, however, on the other hand, right, I can look back at other culture, at other times in our culture, I can right uh, look at Taoism and Buddhism. So there is something in me, and this has to be the case if you think about it. There has to be something in me that is pre-cultural and also transcultural that allows me to do. It allows me to acquire a culture. It allows me potentially to transform and move into another culture to varying degrees, almost completely. Some people move from one culture to another, and they completely enculturate. Right. So. You have to note that there, there is both, there is this tremendously situatedly powerful variation due to our historical cultural cognitive grammar, but there's also deep, deep continuity. Let me give you an analogy for this and, and it'll play it out. There is, there are universal mechanisms of evolution that produce all of the variations we see across the context. Evolution doesn't say what it's going to produce is the same, right, organism. In fact, what it does is the opposite. It just keeps producing more and more kinds of organisms, right? The process is universal. The product is, right, is, is pluralistic, uh, right? But you'll also note that within, so be, there's, there's a universal process, right? So it doesn't mean I can't talk about these different um, 
different forms of adaptivity, whether or not it's biological or cognitive. All I need is, well, yes, but there has to be a universal process of adaptivity. And then when I do that, I can also say, ah, and then there's another form of continuity. So in addition to this tremendous variation, which you've mentioned and I agree with, there, right? And in addition to it's all due to a universal process, like we've talked about, this mechanism of evolving relevance realization, of mediating between home and horror, which you're calling order and chaos, like what Jordan does, right? But there's also perennial problems, right? This is why you get homologies in evolution, why you get, you know, why does the ichthyosaur and the porpoise, why do they look so much the same? They're totally different and totally different. Well, because there are perennial features of certain kinds of environments that present perennial, perennial problems. We, we face perennial problems. We face perennial problems of self-deception, of disconnection, of polarization, etc. cetera. So, in, so there, what I'm trying to get at is, I think a kind of, and I don't think you were saying that, I'm not attributing it to you, but the fact that our cultural cognitive grammars are so powerful does not license cultural relativism because that there are still universal processes that need to be understood and presupposed and explored. And also there are tremendous aspects of convergence because of perennial problems. And that's why the evolutionary analogy, I keep coming back to it because I happen to believe like many people in 4E Cognitive Science, like my, my friend and colleague, Evan Thompson, his teacher, Francisco Varela, there's a deep continuity between the way cognition works in order to fit itself to the environment and the way biology works in order to fit itself to the environment. Sorry, that was a long answer, but you posed a long, tremendous- No, image. no, it, it was a great answer. And it, it just makes me think, I mean, what, what then is the role of a type of biological geographical determinism? In a, in a mm -hmm. sense, you know, so if we say that there's these fundamental un underlying ways of awareness reaching out for, th for things and yeah. based on the environment, it will reach out and grasp and hold and use those things differently. And, yeah. you know, if, if we look at world history, right, that the environments available to, again, let's use our, our friends in the Amazon basin, for example, versus those in the Fertile Crescent, you know, 20,000 years ago are vastly different. Climate, yes. yeah, uh, yeah. beasts of yeah. burden, agriculture, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And so a different, like that, that impulse, that, in, that reflex, however we want to call it, the one that's trying to uh, map the world, pro you know, properly or optimally, um, is highly dependent on the world that it's attempting to map itself to. Sure. And so, and so I, I, I keep coming back to this question myself, like, what is the role of culture? On the, on the one hand, and again, to, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I, I keep coming back to, you know, when I look at the religi religious enterprise, for all of its issues, and, I, and we'll get into maybe what comes what, what new form it may take in, you know, from here on out. But I, I, I do think there's, you know, if, if they're trying to determine the best way to engage reality, and part of that process was observing, let's say, being oriented by different values, and how then that, that mechanism of mediation is constituted. And then over many, many years, kind of determining like, well, these are the ones that are best to have at the top, so that you know, the, the hierarchies of value and therefore perception and behavior are most properly or optimized for grappling with that reality. 
then in my mind, that obviously says something about the reality that it's trying to grasp, right? It says something that, you know, and, and maybe that's kind of the idea of God. Like when we say that these values are mapping to that reality in such a way that, that adhering to those values or being oriented by them leads to quote unquote success. And I understand that may be a, somewhat of a difficult thing to nail down, but let's yeah. say in, individual and collective, individual success and collective harmony optimized, let's say if you're like, do, it doesn't seem irrational whatsoever to me to make that inference to say, well, if, if being led by these values for that mechanism of grafting onto reality, lead to the best outcomes, then something that parameterizes or characterizes the reality that we're engaging with must be resonant with those values. And if you want to call that God, then I don't, I don't have a huge issue with it because it is the thing that determines, or if, if this assertion is correct, it would be the structure, the values, the forces, whatever you want to call them, that do determine outcomes of the mediatory process of the attempt to map onto it so can i respond to that because that's really important um uh so and this is not meant to categorize you or pigeonhole you or just label you i don't i don't like dismissal by labeling i think that's one of the that's one of the problems in our culture right now um the way we're interacting um so instead, I, I, and I see this kind of argument emerging, uh, you know, Jordan made that argument. Uh, I've seen the argument made in, in many other places. Um, um, and what I, my meta argument, my argument about the argument is this, we have, uh, uh, this often starts to resemble an actual historical ex- example, right? And so here's the basic idea, I'll, I'll try, like, I'll call intelligibility that property that we're talking about, that where that, right, what intelligibility is the world can make sense to me and it can increasingly do so. I can, I can, and culture depends on this. Culture ratchets, ratchets up. I don't have to relearn everything from scratch. That's what, that's how, why culture is so powerful at adaptation. You don't have to start from scratch the way the baby gazelle does. You start from all of this given to you, ready to go. Right, like you you didn't invent English, I assume, right? And then just as a clear and obvious example. Yeah. Okay, now what it depends on is that 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 sense, and then and then right. Oh, wait, there's always a moreness. The intelligible, always, uh, right. We, we can get it wrong, but it unfailingly it unf- unfailingly leads to more intelligibility and more intelligibility and more intelligibility, and we start to get this sense of a through line, right? That through all, and it's like it's it's similar to this. Like, like, notice how you can never see all of an object. You never see all of its, you can't see all, because the number of aspects on it are, you know, it's combinatorial explosive, uncountably large, right? And nevertheless, what you do is, there's something running through all those aspects that isn't yet another aspect. It's what makes all the aspects possible, but it's not itself an aspect. Is is that making sense to you just in your phenomenology? Right. And so now instead of doing that for the intelligibility of one thing, do it for intelligibility as an all. Intelligibility keeps doing, and there's there's somehow there's this through line, right? That's going through all of the, uh, right? There's this moreness, but the moreness seems to, how 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 we make more sense and how it follows from how we've previously made sense makes sense to us, right? And so you, you start to get this. And then you get this idea that by 
by looking at the structure, the history, or the structure of the history of intelligibility, we will actually get a trajectory sense. We'll be able to trace the through line and get a sense of, ah, what it points to. Now, you know, and you can see various people doing this, and, and they're, they're, they're typically the grand synthesizers like Plotinus or Maximus or, or Hegel. But here's the idea. For all of their, their differences, there's, there's, there's this sort of neoplatonic idea that if I can do this really carefully, if I can really carefully reflect on the dynamic structures of intelligibility, that will be the that will ultimately disclose the depths of reality to me, reality to me as much as is possible for any human being. And what, what that means is there's something that is right doing this. It's integrating synchronically my intelligibility, but it's also integrating in the through line. This is, this is kind of like, you know, the rhythm and the melody and then the harmony. You can almost like a musicality, if, if you allow me that metaphor. There's a musicality to an intelligibility. And, and like music, it, it reaches into the depths of me and into the depths of the world or reality and binds them together in a profound mutual participation. And the, and the idea of Neoplatonism is that we can very carefully... It, contemplatively, discursively, dialogically, trace out and try to more and more conform to this musicality of intelligibility. And that will disclose the source of all of this, right? And, 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 and the idea is there's some kind of constant integration happening synchronically and diachronically. It points to a deep oneness, source of oneness. Now, the point is, Historically, Neoplatonism, and I think Arthur Vos Lewis is right about this, Neoplatonism is the, is the, is the grammar of spirituality in the West. I, I think that's just indubitable. You take a look, whenever the religions try to become deeper, right, and, and they try to articulate their depths, they turn to Neoplatonism. You see it in Christianity, you see it in Islam with Sufism, you see it in Judaism with Kabbalah. And then Thomas Plant has argued, if you, if you take a look at the Silk Road that connects Rome to China, they have different religions, different philosophical views, but Neoplatonism is the intellectual Silk Road. It's the thing that's being used to, to give a common space of thought so they can talk to each other, not only trade things, but trade ideas with each other. And so I'm not, I, I'm not saying we can go back to Neoplatonism. That's not what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is we have good historical examples uh, that this project that you're putting your finger on, that we can do individual and collectively, is like, let's, if you'll allow me the metaphor, let's really learn to listen and appreciate, like music appreciation, the musicality of, uh, of our intelligibility within, right, synchronically and diachronically. And that will disclose this sort of oneness of ultimate. And, and notice, remember, the oneness is not another aspect. It's not another thing. It's what binds all possible aspects together. I think that um, is what, what is happening today, a kind of post-nominalist um, after the, the three R's, scientific revolution, reformation, renaissance, revival of Neoplatonism. I think that's happening right now. And, and, and you probably didn't, wouldn't even have thought of it that way. And I'm not trying to pigeonhole you. I'm trying to say the, that I'm trying to give, take heart because this, this project has been, I think, done well 
right? Both within the West, whatever that's supposed to put a circle around, and also between the West and the East, again, whatever that's supposed to put a circle around. And we have really good evidence that we are capable of, this is what I like to say, we are capable of replacing the courtroom of debate with the courtyard of dialogos, where something like this, right, this revived or reformed Neoplatonism disposes the furniture of thought so that we can all talk deeply together without having to crush or defeat the other side. Sorry, but I, what you're saying there was just, I think it's really, really important. And so if, if, right, if what, and if you look at classical theology, like God and the one of Neoplatonism are virtually identified repeatedly, again, across the Abrahamic religions. And also there's a relationship between the one and, you know, maybe Brahman or the Tao, like this is constantly happening, right? I think that this is a very viable project and it's not just an intellectual philosophical project in the academic sense. This is a project whereby we can mutually, right, come into the courtyard of dialogue, dialogos, in fact, and afford the, the individual and collective cultivation of wisdom. And the, the fact that there's, there is something that makes the constitution of that courtyard continually available to us and continually in contact with reality realizing itself. And if we want to call that God, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. Yeah. Sorry, but that that was a long speech. But you introduced no. God and that, right? You you, you got it. I know. I just kind of dropped <laughs> it in there, you know. Um, but I'll I'll explain myself a bit now. And, and to your point, you needn't ever uh, preface anything by, uh, you know, apologizing or anything like that because this is actually what we're we're doing, right? I I hope yeah, we yeah. are in the courtyard of Dialogos. And, and you know what's awesome? There's something so uh, fulfilling about these exchanges, you know, I'll just pause yeah. where we're going, you know, conceptually with this for a second. And just, you know, part of the reason that I enjoy doing this so much um, at this point in time is, and I mean, this speaks to the gravity or relevance of it itself, right? Because you, you get a sense you're inching closer to something of extreme value. Yes. And even if you'll never attain it, right? Because we said, we'll, we'll never arrive at maybe that, yeah. that still completed point but just the journey of inching closer to it. And I'm not like, you know, I'm, I try not to be too hyperbolic and I, I try not, I don't mean this even necessarily as an intellectual pursuit. The intellectual pursuit is a means to some ineffable, graceful feeling that is amplified the further you pursue this. And there's nothing like it, you know, there's really nothing like it. So, uh, but what I wanted to say in response to uh, what you're saying, I mean, I, I agree and I used perhaps terminology that lended itself to, you know, Judeo-Christian uh, ideas and, and traditions and things like that. But as you alluded to, I mean, whether we're talking about Brahman or, or the Tao, I mean, I guess my point was simply that conforming to the way uh, and the, the, the reason why that conveys advantage or success says something about the way itself, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the assumption. And one, I guess, part of our enterprise is to try to interpret the way or God or Brahman or what have you, and to try to figure out how we conform most closely to that in thought and perception and action. And, you know, I've had, yeah. and I, I feel like this is the case for you as well. 
you know, you, I think you call it, which I, I'd never come across a term before, but I really like it, a pure consciousness event. I think that's, yeah, that's yeah, what you refer yeah. to it as. Or you could, call, yeah. you could call it a mystical experience. You could call it the ineffable. You know, I, I, I use, and we all know that these are impossible to articulate yeah. with words. So it all sounds silly on, on a certain level, but I tend to refer to it as complete union with the fullness of the present moment, something, something like yeah. that. And in those moments, you, it's almost like you, well, perhaps you unify with, or you get as close as is possible to the way to Brahman, to God, something like that. But then those experiences dissipate and you're more in your normal waking consciousness, let's say. And I guess part of the thing that I'm trying to determine is what degree of influence should that experience and the insights and the knowledge and wisdom that may come from them inform quote unquote, day-to-day life and activity. How are you, how should we go about generating a clarity around right action or the, the rightest action? Let's say, how, how do we, how do we take that and put it into normal life such that it feeds into that cultural mechanism? Because, you know, the, the other point is that that cultural mechanism can be extremely advantageous or it can be extremely detrimental you know, and, and someone that, uh, you know, someone that I used to listen to a lot, and he's a, he's a very interesting person to say the least, but Terrence McKenna used to say, like, culture is not your friend, right? And yeah, yeah. I know what he's saying, right? Because the, the corruption and all the deficiencies of culture can, as we were ta- saying before, it can cause you to commit to the wrong things. It can narrow your attention yes. Im- improperly. But if the culture is properly constituted, and this gets into an interesting discussion about how culture becomes properly constituted, and we we definitely want to put a pin in that and come back to it. But if it is properly constituted, then that mechanism is all the more um, improved in terms of what it can deliver to you in aiding you in making those commitments and narrowing the, the perception optimally such that what it returns to you is better than it could be otherwise so I'd, I'd love to get your your take on those two points and then we can yep. maybe do the culture thing afterwards excellent excellent I, I, um again i i want to pause and uh but again i'm really appreciating um the, the 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 finesse of thought you're bringing to this like i really am it's like i i i, I the dance of dialogos and the aesthetics and beauty of it matter to me as much as the content um and well, so just something to be a, said there right so, so thank you well, thank for that. you thank you well you're you're welcome um so so by the way um if you want me back i'm coming back so <laughs> um good sold uh, you <laughs> um so i want to pick up on something you said first um and then and then use it to answer the second part uh, of what you said so notice you said like we're 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 always inching and there and there's some value there's we we sense some value in. I want to point out to something, and this is just something John Rusin uh, talks about. That notice we 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 all, we we understand this in practice that we we evaluate somebody's knowledge claims n- not just in terms of what they said, right? Uh, but we we also got we also sort of gauge it in terms of their maturity. Right, so I don't place this. I don't place the same epistemic demands on a five-year-old as I would on a thirty-year-old. We would say that's ridiculous. What are you doing? 
right? What are you doing? I don't place the same epistemic demands on somebody who hasn't received a certain formal education as people who are in, have a formal education or in that particular arena. We, so, and this is a point that's well noted, but now, now notice what, what does maturation mean? And, and notice it, it picks up on something you said there. You said, we're going through this process where we're, we're continually conforming ourselves to the way. I'll use that term. That's, a, that's, a, that's nice, right? Because the way means both a method by which we do it and also the way things unfold. And right, we're, we're, we're trying to get a conformity of ways. My way and the way of being are, are come into conformity, right? With each other. They're faithful to each other. Um, <clears throat> so notice that there's a kind of change in knowing that isn't the accrual of, of you know, just propositions, right? You can teach a 10-year-old all kinds of propositions about romantic relationships. They could not perhaps learn the Kama Sutra better than you know it. But until you've made love and until you've done it with, you know, multiple times with responsive partner or partners, you don't understand it. You have to mature into it. We understand this. This is why we, 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 we rightly say, you know, adults shouldn't have sex with children because of that. We understand, no, no, no. Maturity means a lot to love and your capacity for understanding it, your capacity for entering into relationship with that aspect of reality is bound to your level and degree of maturation. What this means is deeply that there are truths that are available to us only as we are constantly maturing. And what do we, what do we mean by that? We mean transforming our ongoing conformity to reality. That's how Rusin actually came down to define. What do we mean when we say to somebody, be more mature? We mean turn and orient to way, the way things are. That's what we're advocating. And we're demanding for people, and you can't say you're done. And this is, and think about what I'm saying is wisdom is just a, the call to continual maturation is, is as many of the dimensions of your ability to fit reality as you possibly can. So there is a knowing that comes through transforming. There are truths that are disclosed to you only by you undergoing a process of deep transformation. And we have lost that. We lost it in the idea, no, 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 we can just get a method and the method doesn't require that I undergo any other transformation other than learning the method. Maybe it's a calculation method. Maybe it's this kind of scientific method, right? And that will give me everything I need. No, no. What you're talking about is that there are, no, no, there are types of truths that are only disclosable through transformation. And this is a perennial claim made across all the different religions and, you know, uh, wisdom traditions. It's like, no, no, no. Like, you're not done, right? If you think you're done with wisdom, you're, you're, you're fundamentally foolish. Now, right, that to me, also gives me what I need to answer your second point is, how do we properly coordinate these moments of, trans, of transcendence, of self-transcendence that seem to call for and afford deep self-transformation? Because one thing you can do, right? You can have those moments and you just turn away from them, right? Or your culture is useless. And this is what's happening to a large degree of the population. You have these experiences and you don't, you don't have a framework to help you make sense of them. Mm. Right. And so you wander around and you either go down some rabbit hole, you spin, or maybe you luckily meet somebody. And like I talked to enough people to see this happening all over the place. Right. But 
This is the proper role. This is another way of talking about one of the proper role of wisdom. Wisdom is that which properly mediates between self-transcendence and self-transformation. When you're engaged in the project of self-transformation, wisdom calls you into the needed self-transcendence in order to engage in the self-correction. You can't engage in profound self-correction unless you engage in self-transcendence. They are one and the same. You're just using two different words for the same thing, right? So wisdom, when you're in self-transformation, -trans calls you to self-transcendence, but wisdom also calls you from self-transcendence back into self-transformation. Like Rilke's great poem, right? He sees the, the, the bust of the sculpture of Apollo, and he's going through it and how beautiful it is, and it's just, oh, he's having this incredible mystical experience. And then what's the final line of the poem? You must change your life. You must change your life. Wisdom says, ah, how do I take that? And, and how, do, how, how do I transform my life? What I'm, what I'm trying to get you to say is wisdom constantly calls you from self-transformation into needed moments of self-transcendence. And it calls you from those needed moments into how you actually transform your life in a re reliable and in a, in a broad sense, rational way. Th this is, you know, this is Plato's parable of the cave and people often stop in the wrong point in the parable, right? Yes, people ascend out of the cave and, and, and they, they see more and more the reality, the real patterns until they see the one, the sun that is the source of, that's not where the parable ends. The person goes back down into the cave and tries to right, transform that world, right? Wisdom, another way of thinking of wisdom is it's this thing that is mediates. <clears throat> it calls us from self-transformation into self-transcendence and calls us from self-transcendence into self-transformation. And if a culture is oriented towards giving a priority to wisdom, a culture will properly help people to constantly navigate the ascent and the return. Beautifully put. You know, th this maybe tension's the wrong word, but I, I mean, I guess I bring up the question in the first place because there's some degree of, there's a, something has not been reconciled, I guess, properly in my mind yet between the transcendent experience and then like, let's say the lift would carry water sort of thing, you know, where you, where you, you're the Godhead and then you're just a meat sack. And what is, <laughs> what's the proper relationship there? And I think, you know, sometimes it's too easy to say, well, the ultimate endpoint is, of course, that transcendent ineffable experience, because it seems like there's nothing more apex to human consciousness. And is that not what we're striving for? And then, I mean, of course, even practically, you could take that down because you say, well, you're not going to get very far if, if you're if you're the Godhead all the time. If you're just pure, pure selfless <laughs> yeah. consciousness, then, you know, your individuated form is probably not going to fare too well. So what should be the relationship between them? And I, I, I think you provided some good insight there. Um, but it's still, I mean, I, sometimes I look at it, and this is purely like a, a visual conceptual aid, but sometimes I think of it as an origin point, you know, and maybe, you know, you could say there's an origin point and then there's like a, a Merkle tree or like a, I don't yeah. know if you know what that is, but several different, you know, shoots of, of, of a tree ad infinitum that go out from there. And that's your perception experience of the world. And all the different things that that encounters based on kind of where its origin point is gently always is kind of moving it around and nudging it and trying to find the, the most proper fit, as we were mm -hmm. kind of alluding to earlier. 
and it may be the case, just to, you know, uh, perhaps a theory, that these ineffable experiences make it easier or give you greater degree of confidence of around where that center or origin point should be in order to determine action. And then you test that by saying, well, if true, what kind of feedback and responses am I getting from all of these interactions further down the, the tree, let's say. And you know, maybe it, some experiences only nudge it gently and say, you know, this would, yeah. but others, you know, experiences of awe or wonder or, or spontaneous transcendence, what have you, maybe they nudge it grossly. And you, you know, this is kind of the same idea of this never ending, never ending enterprise of, of creeping towards something. It's almost like you could reframe it in a never enter, never ending enterprise of trying to hone in on the most proper origin point or center within yourself. And, um, you know, so that I, that I guess is what, how I, one of the ways, cause it's even difficult to articulate how I'm managing this relationship, but th that's probably one of the ways that I'm contextualizing the, the transcendent with, you know, everyday life and trying to determine, you know, and, and I'll, 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 I'll use a very, perhaps, um, it may, may not be a valid comparison, but you know, if you, if you, and I, I, I haven't studied too in depth, like the various sages of the past, but you know, various Buddhist or uh, various forms of Hinduism or Taoism or Zen, like the, the sage is always, you know, they're, they're the one who, who got it right. They, they kind of hang out in that transcendence. And even if they come back into normal life and culture, they're kind of always the sage. Like that's, that's kind of, yeah. yeah, they don't become a normal person again, I guess is what I'm, I'm trying to no. say. And that, that may be the wrong way to put it. But, you know, what I mean, I, I guess the, the question is still, what do we do with that transcendent experience? And I think this is part of what we're trying to determine here, like, what kind of a culture emerges from the proper relationship with that transcendent experience. And as you said, the elevation, or the prioritization of wisdom is definitely a part of that. And that gives us a perhaps an architecture or a scaffolding by which to help answer and mediate these questions. But I don't know, maybe, maybe riff a bit more on that. If, if, if you well, I want thing. to, because I want to argue there's a deep continuity, a cognitive continuum, if you will, between these, these moments of awe and wonder and just your everyday cognition. Uh, and so I want to, I want to, I, I want to take your image of the tree and, and maybe play with it a little bit um, and, and go back to like the guts of deep learning in the wake sleep algorithm of, of Jeffrey Hinton and out of machine learning. It goes, what, what is that? Just give me a sec. Sure. Okay. Sure. So what you can see is you can see, and this is what I argued with like Tim Lillicrap and Blake Richards and I in a paper we published in 2012, what you can see is a deep analog within deep learning, or at least the wake sleep algorithm of the evolutionary process. So the network just picks up a bunch of stuff and it doesn't know what's noise and what's signal. It's trying to figure out some pattern in the environment. What does it do, right? First, what it does is it, it does a kind of an, a data compression. What, what, and you, what data compression, you know, like just for maybe some listeners who might not, you were probably taught in high school, you get a scatter plot, right? right? And then what you do, you draw a line of best fit. So you're losing all the specific data because you're trying to find the invariant pattern because you're trying to interpolate and extrapolate. That allows you to generalize. That allows you to predict. 
That's why we do that in science. It's not just that we like pretty lines, right? There's a there's a deep function. That's data compression. And so what I'm doing is I'm trying to I'm trying to, almost like a, when you're squeezing a sponge, I'm trying to squeeze all the noise out, all the irrelevant. And can I find some invariant pattern underneath all of this, right? Uh, and, and then so you do the compression. Do you stop there? No. Now what you do is the system generates variations. And it goes out and it, uh, right, and then it picks up again on all these different, and it, and then it does the compression, and then it does the variation and the compression. You see what the compression is doing? It's pulling out, trying to get deeper and deeper invariants, and then when it does this, the what we call the particularization, it's trying to pick up on what is contextually specific on all the variants in the environment, because reality is made up about this relationship between variance and invariance. And what it does is it goes compression, variation, compression, variation, and it's constantly evolving its fittedness. Here's what I put to you. Those, uh, those, uh, those moments of awe are deep, deep compression. What we've, and we're doing this all the time. If you look at your brain, you're constantly, what's called self-organizing criticality. You have at all levels of analysis, scales of analysis, you'll have groups of neurons. They suddenly get in synchrony and they're doing data compression and then they break apart. They go asynchronous and that's where they're opening up for the variation. And then they compress and variate, compress at multiply recursive levels, right? By the way, the flexibility of that corresponds to how intelligent you are. At least there's good evidence for that. Now, so that's happening at all scales. And so... The moment of transcendence is just maybe you've, you, the conditions are right, you, you've, you've prepared the right skills, right? You've got compression. You, that's why, what is it? It's oneness. I, I see that, I, I can't even speak it, but there's this underlying through line oneness. It's the massive compression. But if you stick in the compression, right? You've, you've lost the point of the compression. The point of the compression is to now I can more deeply deal with the variation. But that you don't stop there either. Like, you, you, right? You, like, and so that's happening in all of your cognition. Most of, now, notice how that comes up in these little moments. You can have little aha moments of insight. You go, right, right. I shouldn't be thinking of just the results of this project, I should be thinking of the process. I'm talking to my, my members of my group and we're all focused on the goal and we're not valuing the process. Oh, what a, I shouldn't be so stupid. We have those moments all the time. And what have you just done, right? You broke out of a, an inappropriate frame. You, you, oh, I need to incorporate some variants. And then you recompressed it back down. That's an insight. When you chain a bunch of insights together so they afford each other and accelerate the experience of insight, when you take one aha, and get it to prime another aha, that's the flow experience. When you flow, not because you're playing hockey or dancing, but when you flow in your attempt to get that optimal grip on reality, that's wonder and awe and even a mystical experience. But it's a continuum all the way through. What I'm trying to say is you have to see the self-transcendence, the, the, these grand moments into profound self-transformation as completely on a continuum with the micro moments of your day-to-day -day thought. It's the same grammar all the way through. I understand. And I, I like how you put that. When you, when you just referred to the emergence of an insight, right? Like an aha, like, oh, I was thinking about something this way yeah. and it should be yeah. that way. 
it's not necessarily you determining that you should nope. aha, aha yourself, right? So what is ahaing you when that occurs? Oh, that's a great question, right? And so you can't infer your way into, like you can do inference to get you to a place where an aha occurs, but you can't, you can't argue yourself to an aha as a conclusion, right? Um, so what's really interesting uh, is, again, it has to do with sort of these two dimensions we've been talking about, paying attention and transformation. So what you're basically doing in uh, AHA is you're playing with your attention in a way in which you're trying to get two things happening. You're trying to, uh, you're trying to play with your attention in a way that helps break up an inappropriate frame. And then that throws you into the machinery of the very dynamic self-organizing machinery that is driving your entire cognition. So what you do is, if you'll allow me to speak sort of metaphorically, you have this structure, you break it, and then you throw the pieces into the whirlwind of the dynamics of your self-organizing cognition, and it puts together a, a, a alternative frame, and then you see if it fits. And when that, and you can even see sort of a, a shift between the left and the right hemispheres, and sort of Ian McGochris stuff happening. And that's what's going on. So you don't you don't make an insight, you don't receive an insight, you participate in an insight, just like you participate in making love to somebody. And are there certain prerequisites that can be altered to facilitate that more? Like, let's say you, oh, you, yes. you, you break up those pieces, you throw them into the, into the void and see what comes back. I mean, first, of course, it begs a question, like, why does the void have that? <laughs> I, even if it's not doing the, the organization itself, as you said, it's a participatory, participatory thing. Why is it participating with you? On what basis is it is it able to? Ah, okay. So um, a couple of things there. One is again, one of the things you're doing is you're having faith in you're being and, and you're relying on the faithfulness of that dynamic relevance realization machinery that we've been talking about, and it's got an evolutionary like not just biological evolution. It's got an evolutionary history within your history of your cognitive enterprise. So like so. Uh, you're, 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 you're basically saying, I trust my relevance realization machinery, right? Now, what can you do to afford? There's lots of things you can do. You can engage. What are the things that are predictive of insight and, and, and flow is, is mindfulness practice. Um, again, the West has tended to really reduce what that has meant. And so when people hear mindfulness, they hear just seated meditation and then they use the word contemplation and meditation as if they're synonyms and that shouldn't be done. Um, but you, in a meditative practice, what you base, uh, I'll use my standard analogy. We've talked a lot about framing. Here's the framing, like, my, like, like the frame of my glasses. It's what, it's what I can pay attention to and what's, what's outside my framing I can't see, right? But what do I do as a glasses wearer, right? So take my glasses to be the analogy, an analogy for my mental framing. Sometimes I step back and pay attention to my glasses rather than paying attention through them. I pay attention to them rather than through. Why did I do that? To see if there might be some defect, deformation, some gunk, cluttering. that's distorting my ability to see. That's what you're doing in meditation. You're stepping back and trying to pay attention to your mental framing. But how do you know that you've transformed it? How do you know you've cleaned your glasses? You have to put them back on. You have to put them back on and see if you can see more clearly and deeply into reality. That's what contemplatio means. It, it's a translation for the Greek word theoria, where we get our word theory from, because theory means to see more deeply into reality. 
and you have to go back and forth between them. You have to practice contemplation. Is my contemplation, well, maybe it's being distorted by something. Oh, there is a distortion, meditation. Now, have I removed it? Right, now I see more deeply. And you have to do that looping. You have to practice that loop. You have to do meditation and contemplation. That will enhance that, 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 uh, the, the potential for your aha. But you also, you also have to enrich right the 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 the, the landscape that yourself uh, your salience landscaping is running across what do i mean by that right if you take a look at people who have the most profound insights they tend to be on the boundaries between the disciplines right they have a rich ecology they've built very complex right structures of intelligibility because when I'm on this nexus, I do this as a cognitive scientist, right? And if that's a shameless promotion for cognitive science, I don't care, right? Because as a cognitive scientist, I'm trying to like get psychology and neuroscience and linguistics and computer science, right? And philosophy to all talk to each other well. And so what, do I, what am I constantly doing? I'm on that nexus point and I'm trying, I'm enriching all the variation by learning all the home disciplines, but I'm also practicing interdisciplinary compression. What's the through line? And then back out and back in and back out. So I can practice mindfulness to enhance the cognitive flexibility. Then I can enrich the, right, the dynamics of my knowledge of what I know and how I know to afford the most comprehensive kinds of insights. I mean, is it fair to say that that through line, I mean, let, can truth be determined by the, the, the degree to which the through line allows for clarity or understanding or connects to the most things, I, something like that? I would say both, because if we prioritize just the clarity and the coherence, we're back to the polarizing that we were talking about earlier. I think, right, the truth is... In that sense, and this is why the truth should be sacred to us. The truth is that which is always, like the way I was talking about being on that, that point between the disciplines, right? I'm, right? I'm on that point where the inexhaustible mystery of reality is constantly there, almost ominously. So there should be an ominous dimension to truth. But that moreness is always also a shining into of intel that's what phenomenon means it means shining shining into so when i'm like this right things are shining into me they're being intelligible to me but and this is heidegger's great point but that's only because there's an inexhaustible mystery from which they can shine and i think what truth is is a sense when we're getting both of that we're getting that we're getting how it shines into the suchness of this thing and oh, right but also the moreness right when you're getting both the homing and the horizon of horror right when you when it's when it's right when you get a sense of this way of framing is making things clear but simultaneously making things mysterious to me and there's no contradiction there's no dissonance in that they the right they, they perfectly belong together. That for me is um, the, the, the way in which I think we are 
phenomenologically experiencing the sense of truth, or at least the sense of realness. I want to say one more thing for that, just please, right? We have a hermeneutics of suspicion that is becoming prevalent in our culture. The hermeneutics of suspicion says appearances are deceptive. They're distorting. They're deceiving. We get that from Marx and uh, Freud, Nietzsche, Derrida. And there's truth to that. Appearances can be distorting. They can be deceiving. They can be distracting. But here's the thing we forgot. And this is one of the parts that I think Marlo Ponti does so well. Any moment where you go, oh, wait, I was deceived. That's an illusion is dependent on a more primordial moment of, and this is real. Real and illusion are contrastive terms. You can't say one thing is an illusion without asserting something else is real. To say that everything is an illusion makes no sense. It's like saying everything is tall. Like, what, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It sounds like you're saying something, but you're not saying anything. The hermeneutics of suspicion, while useful, is always absolutely dependent, and this is D.C. Schindler's work, on the hermeneutics of beauty. What is beauty? Not, and, and, right, not what we've turned beauty into, which is, as Han says, the smoothness that makes us feel comfortable. That's not what beauty is. If you read ancient uh, thinkers on beauty, like Plotinus, beauty is distressing because beauty is when the appearance is not distracting us or distorting, it's disclosing the reality. So we're getting the shining in from an un, uh, ungraspable moreness. When you go, that's a beautiful, like when you, oh, wow, that's beautiful. There's like, there's so much more, yeah, and yet it's also so clear to me at the same time. That's the hermeneutics of beauty. That's why beauty and truth belong together. It doesn't mean they're identical. It's kind of like, you know, there's a, a rapture in your perception when you encounter beauty, perhaps, something like that. It, yeah. it, makes, it yeah. makes, makes me think, you'll, you'll probably know the, the person who, uh, who I should attribute this quote to, and I, I can't even remember the full quote, but it ends in like infinity in an hour. You know that one? It's like when you oh, see- Oh, well, uh, to, see a world in, uh, to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a, uh, in a wildflower, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand and to spend eternity in an hour. It's William Blake. Yes. That's what, what you were yes. just saying makes me think of. And notice how the transcendent is brought into the specific suchness of the grain of sand. Mm -hmm. He's picking a grain of sand because he's wanting he's wanting you to see that there's a point that everything like every we this is a watch, right? And that's its categorical identity, but it has a suchness. It has this. It has a non-categorical here and nowness itselfness. That is the makes it what it is and beyond my ability to categorize and that's its suchness and it's shining, but it's also the moreness. Remember the moreness that I pointed to, like all the like and when I get that and oh the unique suchness and the, uh, 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 right the un, un the non categorical unique suchness and yet the the the, the almost universal moreness that is pouring into this that's. That is what, how we should properly understand beauty. At least that's what I would argue. And the hermeneutics of beauty should be reprioritized over the hermeneutics of suspicion. Don't dispense with the hermeneutics of suspicion. We need it. But it, it, is, it is pretentious in the deep critical sense of that word to treat the hermeneutics of suspicion as primary and primordial. That is false. There are three things off the back of that I want to just you know quickly throw back at you. One... What do you do with the availability of that type of perception to things? You know, mm -hmm. like it, let's maybe rapture is not the right word, but if you have that type of perception where somehow you're, 
you're getting the you know the full relationship yeah. and extent yeah. of both how is that to influence behavior and then the other thing is like i think i, I like the way that you uh you know you 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 mentioned that truth was uh is always in contrast right it's like truth is you know i, I think i've characterized it this way before but perhaps one way to start dancing around a definition of truth may be the thing that's beneficially contrasted to the most things you know to all others like maybe yeah, yeah. that's how you in some in some way to discover it and the other the third thing is um you know you say when you throw just to go back about five minutes when you throw those bits and pieces of your former perception yeah. or idea or whatever into the void of of your own self you're trusting the relevance machinery to some degree right yes and can i mean what relationship does that action be it conscious or subconscious uh, have with the notion of faith whereby oh, you because yeah. there's some that 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 trusting of the relevance machinery to orient and 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 help determine your behavior it seems like there's uh some relationship between the two those are all great questions so please put the note in them because if i lose a thread i want to be able to pick i want to answer all of these and i want to try and answer them integrated like so the last one is Remember that relevance realization is like adaptivity. It's not in you. It's not in the world. It's in, it's a, it's a it's an ongoing relationship. It's like and the analogy I use. It's like, and I I prefer like talking about faithfulness rather than faith. The way I'm faithful to my partner. It's not that I have a finished set of beliefs or all the skills I need to deal with them. If I if I try to do that, <laughs> I'm doomed in my relationship. Ah, I got you. You're, we're done. I yeah. I'm, right. That's not what it means. It means uh, right. No no that I have a sense of a through line that I can afford her self-transcendent self-transformation and she can afford mine and that we will reciprocally, we're reciprocally bound to that. So this is why the, the, you know, a lot of the metaphors for faithfulness in the Bible are metaphors of sexual intercourse, right? Because it doesn't mean you're doing one thing or even a certain, it means you're constantly you're not trying to get cognitive closure. You're trying to maintain continuity of contact, right? And so the relevance, so the relevance realization machinery, and I mean this deeply, is being co-created by my embodied brain and the environment and the world. Now, if you say, but couldn't all of that be an illusion? If it is, I don't care because, again, I don't know what it means to say everything's an illusion. If, there's, if you're saying that this is all somehow false, and even my thought of that is false, and I can't get out, I don't care about that because you're saying that it's impossible for me to ever know that it's, it, it's that kind of grand, all comprehensive illusion. That doesn't make any sense, right? Mm -hmm. So, because, because can, I, can I disprove to you that, can I, can I show you that absolute skepticism, absolute solipsism of the absolute specious present is false? No, because you can always claim, well, it could be that it's just me all by myself and everything else is a projection of my mind. And even my memories of my past are all an illusion and right everything. And there's just me and there's no knowledge. And even my self-knowledge is under, like you can do, I can't disprove you, but I take it that that doesn't make any ultimate sense. So for me, right, I take it that there are, there is deep, continuity of contact because solipsism and skepticism are in some participatory sense not possible 
Now, about what do you do with the, the, the beauty, right? Virtue, this is Plato. He doesn't say this, but this is what he's, I, I would argue he's saying. Virtue is the beauty of wisdom. Virtue is about, right, not just experiencing it or seeing beauty. Virtue is about enacting it. You're always trying to get that sweet spot between the moreness and the suchness of reality. Wisdom is just the optimal enhancement of your relevant realization machinery, right? This, so think about how even what we call physical beauty or sexual beauty are supposed to help fit us for sexual reproduction, right? There, there, there are, and can it, be, can it be hijacked? Of course, there is no final form, okay? But, but general, why do we like clear skin? Because it indicates health. Why are we after health? Well, because it is a necessary condition for, for successful reproduction. So beauty is disclosing something to me. It's helping me optimally fit to the environment. Well, that's what virtue is, but not, you know, you're not fitting for necessarily sexual reproduction. You're trying to fit to, right, the world in the good life. Virtue is the sense, uh, is the beauty of wisdom in that it is the, it's the sense that you are getting more and more optimally fitted to your environment for a good life, individually and collectively. So what, and this is, the idea is, I'm gonna take what you might call perceptual uh, beauty, physical beauty, and, and this is the symposium by Plato. And I'm gonna use that to, oh, right. And then I'm gonna try and pay attention to beautiful lives. What makes a life beautiful? Oh, what makes a life beautiful are these ways of fitting right to yourself, to other people in reality that sort of produce and protect and promote personhood. Well, what are those ways of fitting that produce and protect and promote personhood, persons within community? Oh, those are the virtues. And every virtue is just a way of being wise. Being kind is how to be wise in this situation. Being courageous is how to be wise in this situation. Virtue is the beauty of wisdom. And what you might call artistic or sensual beauty is a platform to help lead me and educate me into deeper kinds of beauty, the beauty of good people leading good lives. And if you say, well, why should I want that? What's the justification? I can't justify that to you. Every other justification I do is justified by how it leads to good people leading good lives. There's nothing, well, what should that be for? It shouldn't be for anything. And if you think it should be for anything, I don't think you understand how beauty and right meaning work. That's what that would be my answer. I hope I touched on all three, three questions. You did, and I've got more now. So, you know, when we, when we look at that, and, and I, like, I love how um, virtue is the beauty of wisdom. That's what you, how you articulated it, right? That's right, that's right. Yeah. I think that's a great, you know, I, I as I have, familiarize myself with, you know, <clears throat> thinkers and uh, spiritual adepts and mystics and stuff throughout the past, you know, and I, I alluded to, you know, the, the, the stereotypical sage that let's say reaches enlightenment and just stays in the temple, for example, you know, I've come to appreciate that, you know, first of all, we, we all have all potential within us, right? I mean, we could be a monster, we could be a saint, we could be everything in between. Yes. I mean, we have that, that potential. And so, and, and we tend to, and to go way back to the start of this conversation, it seems to me that we tend to, based on our cultural and familial and other conditioning that we receive, and, and then of course our own 
intentional participation in that process, we tend to sort of solidify an identity, right? Because that's useful in operating in the world and uh, providing value and as a result, sustenance and all that kind of stuff. But then of course, the danger of that particular process is that you then identify with the identity more so than the thing that's generating the identity, right? Exactly, exactly. And and this is, you know, I don't think this is mind blowing to anybody, but you know, what, when I think about mastery and this, this will lead into a question more relevant to what you just said, but when I think about mastery, it's the, it's the ability to engage or embody the aspect of yourself that's most appropriate for any given moment that you might find yourself in. Now, the reason why that, that, that came up in my mind is because I think that's fairly similar to what you just said uh, in terms of the role of wisdom, whereby you embody the right virtue for the right moment, regardless of- Can I interject just right here? Just one thing. I I don't want to disrupt your thoughts. So hold your thought. I just want to say, notice the deep connections between virtue and virtuosity. And also virtual in the sense of that which holds the power of potential, right? And actualizes it, right? And so virtual, virtual, virtue and virtuosity need to be brought back together again. And that's exactly what I am talking about. So please continue. That's super interesting, especially the virtuosity point, because that's basically what I'm talking about, right? Yes, Um, exactly. But yeah, you know, so to me, uh, you know, and I guess to a certain degree, what I've tried to cultivate in my own life is making sure that whatever moment I wind, I wind up in either intentionally or unintentionally, that I can engage an aspect of myself that is most uh, appropriate for that. And of course, you know, to some degree, there can be natural, that's a, you can do that absent training, but obviously there's a a big component of training there too, right? Like if if you need to embody, you know, aggression in a certain moment, or if you need to embody, you know, wisdom or calmness or astuteness or all this kind of stuff. I mean, these are all different aspects of yourself that you can independently refine and then put on the bookshelf so that when circumstances dictate that one or another aspect of yourself is required for optimal outcome, you can, you can put it there and you're not so rigidly attached to a static identity that you're not able to Yes, you know, move through those different aspects aspects properly, and the way you just can you just articulated there in regards to wisdom and virtue, I think that's one that I'll I'll integrate into my thinking and articulating of that process in the future. Aristotle said it's not about being angry or not being angry. Like we have this prototypical image of the sage as just always calm. He said it's about being angry at the right time for the right reasons to the right degree. Right. Yeah. Right? And it's the same about love. It's the same about anything, right? It's again, it's that relevance realization. But you Notice can't do also, that if you're so if you're so attached to the static identity, right? I guess that's exactly, one of the final exactly. points. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I wanted to say, notice how what you said about like a network identity and what I was saying earlier about a network of knowledge in order to afford insight, in order to afford transformation. Those two networks are like, they're, inter- they're overlapping in like a profound way. Notice what you want too is, uh, and here I'll use a martial art analogy. You not you, you not only want the variety, you want what's called a small world network organization of all of your roles, all of yourselves, all of all of all of the um, all of the constellations of agency that you can bring to bear, right? And you want like you're right, you want it rich, but you also think about like sorry, I, I use this analogy, like so you know your martial art, you have all this all these moves you can make and you want a rich network of that. 
but you also want like, so you take the fighting stance. You don't actually use the fighting stance. What am I doing is I'm trying to find a nexus point that allows me to move as, as best as possible between, right? And this is like a small world network formation between. So I want it organized. I want it organized and I want hubs and nexus points. So I can also, I want to curate it in the deep senses of the word curate so that I also can move through that right network. And what do you want in a network? You want a balance of efficiency, short path distance between any two points and about uh, and redundancy, multiple connections. So you can, if one gets broken, you right? And that's a small world network. It's doing relevance realization. You also want to, and this is what religions do because religions are primarily about transforming the self. I think McNamara is right about that, right? What you want is you want yourself to be a dynamic, right? Small world network organization so that you have not only the richness but you all that that robustness that flexibility but you also have the ability to quickly and effectively move transformatively between the points and and, and, and in, in really profound ways religions help to build that small world nexus of the self and we are at a loss in, in our attempts to try and replace that with well, the machinery we have available to us right now I think uh, John, I, I, I'm going to have to go soon. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, no, no, I, I, I know. I we got we'll, we'll shut it down because uh, I know uh, you got to stop on your time. So we'll we'll have to pick this up. But I just want to uh, finish off perhaps with this uh, to to piggyback on what you just said. And I, I think this goes back to what we were discussing about the utility and necessity of the experience or knowledge or appreciation of the selfless component of the self. Yes. Because Yes. Now, it, a lot yes. of a lot of fighters in particular will, will say that, you know, UFC or what have you will, will say that fighting is like 90 percent psychological. And my interpretation of what that means applies to what we've just been discussing in that yeah. the yes. degree to which you allow the vestiges or the remaining the, the way that you allow an element of the static identity of the self to interrupt the the embodiment of one of those other as, aspects yes. or grooves will detract from its utility in the moment you're trying to deploy it. So having an, a, an ability to recognize the selfless so that when needed, you can fully, not 50%, not whatever, fully move into the aspect required exactly. that, and not be interrupted by the self. I think that can, you know, that's the rub, right? That's, that's why that's, you know, one, perhaps one of the primary utilities of having an appreciation for this selfless aspect of the self. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and also for the non-thingness, the no-thingness aspect of the self, the, the, that the I, to use James' distinction, the I that is never observed but only observes, and it, and it moves through the imaginal space of all the me's, and the I is no me. It's like the through line that is not any particular aspect. The, right, the I is that through line that's running through all the different aspects of yourself, and if you try and make it another aspect and lock it down, you've lost the through line. You've lost the function. Yeah. Exactly. I exactly agree. John, this has been great, man. I'll let you go. And um, I feel like we've got some more to discuss. So I'll, I'll, yes. hit, you, I'll hit you up and we'll set something else up for the, Count on the it. near future. Count on it. I, I, I would love to come back and continue this, John. This awesome. has been amazing. Thank Very you much. so much. We'll talk to you soon. See ya. Take good care. Bye-bye.